Artemis listeners, we want to hear from you. Now through November 2nd, you can enter to win a $100 gift card to Isle Royale Outfitters by completing our listener survey. Click the link in the show notes to share your thoughts with us today. Last week on the podcast, we spoke with Tice Sapli about some of the conservation challenges unique to Arizona, especially for birds and elk. It's funny how the more you learn about one species, the more you start looking to others, right? Tice mentioned an interest in beavers, and we've decided to re-air one of our favorite episodes from the Artemis archives. This one's called Beaver Believers with Emily Fairfax. Enjoy! Welcome to the Artemis podcast presented by Hunt to Eat. As sportswomen and conservationists, we do more than hunt and fish. The complete sportswoman can skin a deer, land a burly trout, navigate in the wild, and she knows her game commissioners and politicians, knows wildlife laws, defends all wildlife, advocates on their behalf, and teaches others these skills. Artemis embodies the definition of the complete sportswoman and sees it as our duty to use our platform to promote and teach this philosophy. Do you have or want these skills in this network? Visit artemis.nwf.org and join us today. And thank you for protecting our wild world. Hello, welcome to the Artemis Podcast. I'm your host, Marsha Brownlee, and I am joined today by my co-host, Becca Aceto. Hi, Becca. How's Idaho today? Hello, Marsha. Idaho is hot, but I'm heading up to the mountains this afternoon after work to hopefully get some cooler air. Nice. Has it what uh, has it been hot for a while? Is that like are you guys in officially in summer now? Oh yeah, July and August are pretty uh, pretty rough here. We had a day the other the other day it was like 104. Oh, I think that's geez. what. My, yeah, that's what my car was telling me at least. So it's not my or my dog's favorite type of weather. No. I feel like, is that early? Typically doesn't get that hot in Montana until like mid to late August. Yeah, I think August is more common here as well. Ugh. I just, every time I think of hot weather that early on, I think of forest fires and that makes me nervous. But that's another podcast topic Uh, today. Well, (laughs) actually, we may dive into that a little bit today. Today, we're going to talk about beavers. Uh, Beavers are a keystone species, which means they modify their environment in a way that influences the whole ecosystem. Uh, And Artemis has been really interested in beavers and the way that they um, protect and restore Western streams and watersheds, changing everything from soil to vegetation to water quality to wildlife. And we're really excited to dive into this topic today with our guest, Emily Fairfax. Hi, Emily. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. I love talking about beavers and anybody who asks me to talk about beavers, they are uh, always going to get a yes from me. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Are you uh, officially a beaver believer? Isn't there like a button? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I am definitely a beaver believer. I'm a beaver person. We have all sorts of different strange beaver club names for ourselves. (laughs) As with any passion comes the 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 name to identify with. I love it. Um, where are you joining us from today? I am out in California, in Camarillo, California. It's like halfway between LA and Santa Barbara, right bordered up on the northern side of the Santa Monica Mountains. Oh, so it's uh, generally hot in California, but at least where I am on the coast, it's a cool 70 and foggy right now. Ah, cool 70. That sounds lovely. That sounds like um, like second cup of tea weather right there. That's nice. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, to kick us off, can you tell us, do you have a favorite beaver encounter story? Ooh, I do. I think my favorite beaver encounter story is actually from before I knew I was going to be like a beaver person. I was up in Minnesota, just chilling on the edge of a lake um, in like November and it was super cold and I was just looking out at the lake and then this beaver just swims up to me out of nowhere and it's just, just looking at me and swimming around and I watched this beaver for like 15 minutes and then it swam away and I was like, wow, that was a really cool beaver experience. I've never seen one before. And then like I pushed it to the back of my head I didn't think about it for years. And now that I'm like fully immersed in beavers and beaver science, I think about that moment and I'm like, man, that beaver knew. It was like, she's going to gonna be a beaver person someday. <laughs> yep. He it was trying it. to tell you. It was. Yeah. It was your totem animal. He's like, hello. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I Yeah, I don't have many beaver encounter stories. I think the only one was from about five years ago when I was just walking along the river um, fishing and heard the beaver tail slapping against the water um, and stepped back to see if I could find it. But I didn't even, yeah, I didn't, it was cool to discover that that's what was making that noise because I didn't even know at the time. Yeah, they're super elusive. I joke that it's my curse that I've never actually seen a beaver while I was working. Oh, I, wow. <laughs> like whenever I'm out for work, I never see them. Uh, but as soon as I go out for fun or to just relax or camp or something, there's beavers everywhere, of course. Oh, that's so interesting. Feel like- that seems pretty standard in wildlife work, I feel like. You're just trying too hard, right? You just have to stop wanting it just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, giving off the wrong energy. The beavers are like, not today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just makes me think that they're all introverts. <laughs> they're like, no, that's too much. <laughs> I like it. True. Um, I don't know if you guys know. So I live in Idaho, and there is a true story about reintroducing beavers to the Frank Church wilderness. And this was back when it was the Idaho primitive area. So before it was a designated wilderness and they, I'm sure we've all seen sort of the the funny photos, but they parachuted beavers in boxes out of planes over the wilderness. And these boxes, they were, they were built so that when they hit the ground, they opened gently and let the beaver out and the beaver just scurried off and did its beaver thing. And so before that, they were packing them in on horseback, and they were finding that that trip was too rough for the animals. So I guess they thought that parachuting beavers out of planes was a little gentler on them. <laughs> but, um, but I love that story because I've spent a lot of time in the Frank Church, and I've seen beavers back there. And I always wonder if they're, if they're part of that strain of beavers that were parachuted into the wilderness back in the mid-90s. So what their or family mid nineteen hundreds, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what the stories their great grandparents tell. Emily, can you t- can you kick us off? I feel like we already kicked off. Emily, can you tell us a bit about who you are? Yeah, so I am an assistant professor of environmental science and resource management at California State University Channel Islands. Uh, I am a major beaver believer, beaver lover, beaver person. And when I'm not doing research on beavers or teaching classes at my university, I'm really big on hiking and running. And I do a little bit of fishing myself. Uh, Took a bit of a hiatus from it during graduate school when I was super slammed with work constantly. But now that I'm back into a more normal career path, I'm finally getting back into fishing. Nice. And how did you first get interested in beavers? So When I was in college, I was uh, leading wilderness trips up in northern Minnesota for the Girl Scouts, and we would be canoeing around the Boundary Waters, and I knew what beavers were. I'd gone to, like, wetland 
field trip things growing up and it was always really cool. And so I was like cognitively aware of beavers. And then you become really viscerally aware of beavers when you're dragging your canoe over their dams day in and day out. And you're like <laughs> confronted with the fact that these are really intense structures and like they're sturdy and you can see like these videos of bears and moose walking across beaver dams and like me up there in that wilderness I was now face to face with the fact that there are these massive wooden structures that were essentially creating lakes that I couldn't personally build but that this like 70 pound rodent was building hmm. and that it was like it blew my mind I was like this is wild and then I kind of just put that in my back pocket and I was uh a chemistry and physics double major in college. And then I went on to be an engineer myself, uh, but I wasn't super into it. And I was working my job as an engineer down in New Mexico and I was getting all mopey because it wasn't like, it wasn't my passion. I kept finding myself hiking around wetlands and going fishing and like kind of avoiding my office job. And then I was sitting on the couch and I was watching PBS and this documentary called Leave It to Beavers came on. And I was like, oh, this will be fun. And so I was watching the documentary. And then there's just these aerial shots of beaver dams in the middle of deserts. And it was so striking to me to see this sort of barren landscape with this bright green wet patch in the middle, just like teeming with wildlife. And the narrator was like, you know, beavers are doing this, but we still don't really know how it all works. And... I hadn't realized that. I thought like animals were solved. I didn't get that there were jobs in that still. And so from that moment on, like I couldn't stop thinking about beavers and all these memories of the Boundary Waters beavers were coming floating back and thinking about seeing wetlands when I was a kid. I was like, I got to do this. Uh, so I quit my job and I went to graduate school for beavers and I have not looked back since. And every time I see anything vaguely beaver related, I'm still super excited uh, and it's been a number of years since I started that path. So I definitely think I'm on the right path now with beavers. That's awesome. What was your, um, your focus for your dissertation? My focus was beavers and droughts and fires. Uh, and then I also had a chapter about how to help bring people with disabilities into the outdoors uh, by making our teaching assistants and our instructors a little more empathetic to the challenges that people face when going outside for the first time. Um, so it was a little bit of a split dissertation. There's a, a teaching component, and then there were a couple chapters on beavers and droughts and fires. Mm -hmm. And I, I just from reviewing the um, your website and some of the work you've done online, I love that parallel. I mean, both of those tangents, the, the beavers in the science work that you do seems to work really closely hand in hand with the teaching research that you've done which is great as an educator. I love that. Um, I'm, I'm curious because you, you said that when you were watching that documentary, they said um, that they still don't understand how that works. And maybe I'm diving in the deep end right here, but what were some of the questions that they were still pursuing? Like what, what didn't they know or understand yeah. yet? That, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's definitely like into the deep end, but let's go. I'm all about it. All right. Um, so <laughs> they were showing these really bright green patches. And so there was no doubt that like this area was greener and they knew there were beavers here. So like it was a green area that had beavers. What they were still trying to figure out is did the beavers cause this greenness? Are the beavers just attracted to green areas? Um, the site that they were looking at in the documentary was up in northern Nevada by Elko. Uh, and it was these two creeks that had become really heavily incised from being overgrazed. And the ranchers up there, 
actually partnered with a gold mine up there and they were like, you know, we got to fix these streams. The water is not healthy. Uh, the cows don't have anything to eat anymore. Like everything's dried up. And so they started just doing some prescriptive grazing, moving the cows around and the streams started slowly kind of coming back. So there's a little bit more vegetation. And then like out of nowhere, beavers showed up. Uh, hmm. And they really quickly took those streams from having zero beaver dams to having about 300 beaver dams. Uh, wow. So it was like a really fast change. And when the beavers came, they noticed like a lot of uh, really rapid restoration was happening on these creeks. So the vegetation was coming back way faster. And the riparian zone, uh, which is the green area right beside the streams, it was getting way, way bigger, way faster. And then there was this really heinous drought that hit that area. Uh from 2013 until 2016. And there were all these news articles coming out in like the Elko Daily Press or whatever it was, being like, the beavers are battling droughts. Uh, they're keeping it green. And all these people in the community were seeing that where there were beavers, there was still green vegetation, even in the middle of this multi-year drought. And so there was a lot of sort of anecdotal evidence. So people were talking about it, people were seeing it, but no one had really put a number to it. No one could say like beavers keep it 50% greener. You need 20 beavers to keep a, a stream green or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a lot of just sort of uncertainty about how much are beavers influencing this? Would this have happened without beavers? Do you need you know hundreds of beaver dams to see this happen? Do you just need five beaver dams? Um, are the places with beavers actually greener than places without beavers or are we just kind of seeing what we want to see? Um, and so my first study, actually, I used satellite images to look at that field site from the documentary because I was kind of obsessed with it. Uh, and I put a number to it and they did keep it greener. They kept it way greener. Uh, and it, you only needed a couple of beaver dams to get a bright green patch that stayed green throughout three years of really intense drought. Very cool. That's amazing. And that was, um, so that green patch you were talking about, that was the one in Nevada? Mm-hmm. Because I don't, so I don't know exactly where you're talking about, but I spoke with um, a gentleman. He's the manager of the Maggie Creek Ranch up near Elko. And yep, he that's the one. Yeah, so John Griggs, and he gave this incredible presentation about it. And I spoke with him afterwards. And, you know, it's he's this esteemed rancher. He won Nevada Rancher of the Year recently, and or Nevada Cowboy of the Year. And he, you know, he's also a self-proclaimed beaver believer. And it was incredible. And I think, you know, beavers do this work all over the country, but especially in Nevada where it's so arid and dry, it is just so apparent how healthy their riparian areas are now. It's really cool to see. Yeah, it's incredible. Can you talk to us a bit about the history of beavers in North America? Yeah. So beavers have been around for millions of years in North America, the beavers as we know them, uh, the dam building ones. And they... Well, I'm curious. What are, what... What are the beavers that we don't know? <laughs> oh, um, so there used to be, yeah, that was a weird way to phrase that. There used no, to be a lot it. more it's, types yeah. of beavers. Um, there's only really two species of beavers right now, and they look pretty much the same, and they do the same thing. There's North American beaver and Eurasian beaver. Uh, they cannot interbreed. They have a different number of chromosomes, but if you just look at them, like if you put two in front of me, it'd be pretty challenging to tell the difference. Uh, so those are the two beavers that we still have. There used to be like 24 different species of beavers, and they ranged from these little ground beavers that dug spiral burrows into the earth. Um, they did not chew trees. And then we also had the Pleistocene megafauna beaver, which was a beaver the size of like a linebacker. It was like mm. seven feet long and 300 pounds <laughs> and uh, also did not chew trees. It was only able to live in existing swamps. Uh, and so when you had 
climate shifting throughout the history of North America and, you know, ice sheets come down and then ice sheets recede and it gets dry in some places and it gets forested in some places. Uh, any animal that's going to be really dependent on a specific type of climate is going to have a hard time with that. And so the a lot of the beaver species were really dependent on existing swamps and those were just, you know, fluctuating too much and it was hard for those beaver species to persist. Uh, and then you had these beaver species the ones we have today that uh, could build dams. So they would chew trees down and they would actually build with the material and they could create their own ponds. And so these two species of beaver that could make their own habitat uh, just completely crushed out all the other species. Like they were so heavily favored by evolution uh, that now that's all we have is the dam building species. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like uh, a little bit of a parallel to humans and hominids. And you think about all of these different species of hominids that were trying to exist. And then the one that was just most able to use tools and be smart is what persisted. And that's the same thing with beavers. Very cool. Okay, so so history of beavers in North America. So the dam building ones, like what was what were their numbers? Where were they most prominent? The the beavers that build dams in North America, they uh, have existed across the continent from like all the way up in the Arctic Circle down to the northern parts of Mexico uh, for about seven million years, and there were estimated to be about four hundred million beavers on the continent at their peak which was about a beaver per kilometer of habitable stream. So they were absolutely everywhere. Uh, And a lot of the indigenous people had really strong relationships with the beavers. Um, Up in Alaska, the Cayucan people, they had these stories about how if you're going to go harvest a beaver um, for food, then you put the bones back in the pond and you don't take another one until those bones are gone. And it's sort of this very regulated... um, use of beaver. It's really integral. I mean, their tail is like straight up bacon. So I totally understand wanting to uh, use them as a food source. But then the European fur trade happened. And that was like a really non-sustainable harvesting of beavers. And the population really quickly went from 400 million beavers down to hundreds of thousands left on the entire continent. Uh, It absolutely decimated their population. And for a while, it was looking like we were just going to lose beavers altogether. Um, But luckily, the hats that they were being used to create went out of fashion. And uh, across the continent, little government motions started happening to sort of protect the beaver and get some of that hunting pressure off the beavers so that their population could rebound a bit. Uh, And it's been fairly successful. Today, we're looking at somewhere between 10 and 20 million beavers, which can sound like a lot, but it's still um, a very small fraction of their original population. Mm -hmm. But they are doing better in some places. Uh, Some states, you see their population really rising right now, and they're moving back into all these streams they used to occupy. Some places, they're having a little bit more difficulty with conflict, and so they're still being trapped out. or lethally managed, especially like here in California, we don't have the ability to move beavers. So if there is a nuisance beaver that is causing a problem, the options are try to like wrap your trees in chicken wire or put in flow devices or kill the beaver. So there's no chance to like move it back to the mountains where it would be doing great. Like they did in Idaho um, with the airplanes, although we don't really need to. So is the decision decision in California, is that coming from the fish and game department or who, who decides that they can't be moved? Yeah, that's the, that's fish and game. Um, it is. So for a long time, people were unsure if beavers were native to California, uh, because when they were trapped so heavily, uh, there's this term I heard at a conference recently called ecological amnesia. And so there's like three generations of people living in California right now. 
that don't remember beavers being there because they've been gone for so long. And then when beavers start to come back, it feels like they're an invasive species because we haven't seen them and we don't have memories of them ever being in these watersheds, uh, even though they were there and there are people that can remember them. Um, it's not wide knowledge. And so uh, I believe that the sort of original thought was that beavers are invasive, so we shouldn't let them be moved around like they just need to be left or killed or dealt with some other way. But since that original sort of definition, there has been a lot of research that has shown that beavers are native to California, all the way from the mountains down to the coasts. Um, but the piece of policy that lets you or that prevents you from moving them uh, has not been updated. That's actually one of my like big charges here in California is trying to get some more data that would support letting us move beavers around and get them out of problem areas and into the watersheds that want them. Yeah, it's very interesting. I. I imagine it's particularly like if, if, if an area is not used to having beavers and then they do move in, um, as we mentioned earlier, they're a keystone species and they have a significant impact on their landscape. And so I imagine that just reinforces the idea that they're changing the place. I imagine that yeah. just contributes to the whole conversation in ways that could be not helpful um, if, the, if the knowledge of the history isn't there. Um, but since we're on that topic, can you talk to us about how beavers change the landscape and what exactly makes them a keystone species? Mm-hmm. So when beavers move into a landscape, they like to be on water that flows perennially, so year-round, but uh, there are reports of them moving on to seasonal streams. And when they get on those streams, first thing they do is they start building a dam. And that dam is a dam just like the ones that we build as humans. It blocks the flow of water um, and it starts creating a pond. However, unlike human-built dams, beaver dams are leaky, so they don't completely stop the flow of water downstream. So you get this big pond, you still have a little bit of an outflow happening at its mouth. And then uh, once they've got this pond, they'll start digging channels out into the landscape. And that's a really important part of beaver behavior and their sort of landscape modifications that people don't always think about. So beaver on land is like, it's round. It is like a chicken nugget waddling around the landscape <laughs> for predators. Like it's not. Uh, you've now you've now compared them to bacon and chicken nuggets. Is it lunchtime? Right. Um, but like if you're a predator and you see that on the landscape, like easy pickings, they are sure. not built for land movement. But once they're in the water, they're super good swimmers. They're like otters. Uh, so they dig these channels to be sort of like water highways out into the landscape. So they can swim through them, they can chew down a tree, and then they can float that tree back to their dam or their lodge or whatever they're working on. Um, beavers are big and they're strong, but they are not able to just carry an entire tree over land. Uh, so they need to dig these channels. These channels are super, super important because that's actually what's spreading the water out in the landscape. And those channels have a much, much larger radius of influence than the pond itself. And so that is really key in doing what beavers do best, which is turning streams into wetlands. Um, you get these patches of wetland just all along the stream path as you go from the headwaters down to the ocean. Uh, and instead of having just a single course stream making its way down, you just have wetland, then stream, then wetland, then stream. And when they make that transformation, they're creating a habitat that is really sensitive and that we really don't have a lot of left. A lot of wetlands have been drained or degraded or lost over the last hundred years. And so the beavers moving in and making these wetlands creates a habitat that's so critical for migratory birds, for fish, for wildlife that just needs water to drink during dry times. Um, and that's really why they're keystone, because there's not a lot of things out out there that can make a wetland. Mm -hmm. That's that's so fascinating. I was out actually just the other day um, next to a river and saw this 
uh, giant tree that had been chewed down by a beaver that was probably as big around as I am. <laughs> Maybe I, I want to rephrase my word giant. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was wondering, okay, how does that animal get this where it needs to go? But those channels, uh, it's just brilliant. Um, and so I know just from high water streams here in Montana, with a lot of the, with beaver no longer on the landscape, it was just like you mentioned it went in during the glacier melt, it goes straight from the top all the way down super quickly. And so for us, that means a lot of um, flooding uh, during flood season because it's just all just rushing down so quickly. And it also means that um, water gets low uh, in late summer after, you know, after all the snow is off the mountaintops. Um, and then we struggle with rising water temperatures that then lead to, um, to like kudal restrictions for fly fishing during the heat of the day so we don't stress the fish out. And so those beaver wetlands, it seems, they act just like a slowing down process where it traps a lot of the water early in the season and then allows it to drain super, or not super slowly, but more slowly so you've got cooler water for longer in the season. Yeah, Um, absolutely. uh, How does that... Like, uh, can you talk to us about how, I mean, I think it's fairly obvious about how that benefits fish, uh, but can you get a little bit more into the science of how that particularly benefits fish and wildlife? Yeah. When beaver wetlands slow down water, so you have a big, let's say, snowmelt coming downstream, and it's this really, really cold water. Uh, If it's just going downstream, it's going to keep going on its path and make it all the way down, hit the big river, and be carried away uh, pretty quickly. If it hits a beaver wetland, then you have a number of different storage places for it that can slow it down different amounts. So it can go into the pond for starters, which is since it's like a small reservoir, uh, it will slow the water down by, you know, some days, maybe a couple weeks. And as it sits in that reservoir, it does warm up a little bit, um, but it's still cool water and it's still being kept in a place in the landscape that doesn't have a consistent supply of cool water other than snowmelt. The other place that it can be stored is actually in the shallow groundwater system. And so when the beavers build their dams, that is a flow obstruction. And so water coming down and hitting it uh, sort of creates this high pressure zone. And the water needs to go somewhere and it's bumping up against the dam. And it's not very easy for it to defy gravity and go over the dam. Uh, And it's challenging for it to go around the dam because the dams are quite long. So a lot of times what it will do is it'll go down into the sediments, into the soil uh, and mix with groundwater. And that's a really slow pathway because in addition to there being water, there's all this dirt that the water has to move through. And so as the water comes into the pond and it gets down into the shallow groundwater system, it's slowed down a lot and it's mixed with the groundwater. And then when you do have sort of a drying period, whether that means you've you know, run out of snow melt or you hit a drought or something like that, uh, it becomes energetically favorable for that water then to sort of go back into the stream instead of staying in the groundwater. Mm-hmm. And so you can get this groundwater recharging into your stream if it has been previously stored there by the beaver pond. So they're really, really good at raising the groundwater up, uh, keeping this nice, cool sort of wet sponge effect in the landscape that when it's dry, it squeezes the sponge and a little bit of water comes out. And then when it's wet, the sponge fills back up. Um, So it's a really slow pathway. And when they do that, one of the things that's really important is they're creating heterogeneous temperature along the waterway. And so you still have these fast flowing sections of stream between the beaver ponds, uh, but you also have these really slow sections and you also have these places where groundwater is coming up. And then you have places where groundwater is going down. 
And what you get is this really patchiness in the temperature. And so when I walk through beaver ponds with my temperature probe, I can be standing in one spot and be getting a reading of, you know, upper 50s, and I can feel water like flowing up. There's definitely groundwater coming up. And then I move over a few feet, and the reading is in the upper 60s, and the water doesn't feel like it's moving quite as strongly. And then I move down into the stream that's really shallow below the beaver pond, and I get water temperatures in the 70s. And this is really important to have these sort of heterogeneous patches of temperature because not every fish wants the same temperature. And even within the life cycle of a single fish, it's going to need a lot of different temperatures to live in. And so when you have a lot of this patchiness all together in the landscape, the fish doesn't have to go very far to find a temperature it's comfortable with. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. I never yeah. thought about that. Uh, how, so uh, during the winter time, how, how much does that temperature variance shift? Uh, it's gonna depend on if you get uh, ice over and snow in the winter. So out here in California, where I'm looking at beavers, there is no snow season. Uh, so we just have a lot of rainfall coming in and we're gonna see pretty similar behaviors to what you would see during the summertime. But in a snow over place, uh, the beaver ponds, the main ponds are usually built so that they don't freeze through. So the main pond is the one that the beaver actually lives in, that it builds its lodge in, and they really try to make this pond deep enough so that it won't ice through all the way. Because during the winter, they don't hibernate. They go inside their lodge and they get kind of extra lazy, but they don't have the mechanism to hibernate. So what they'll do is they'll store a Sounds bunch like of food. Me. Sorry. I know, right? No, it's like, totally, there's a reason I love these animals. I relate to them so much. Um, they store a bunch of food underwater. So they make a food cache, a bunch of sticks that still have leaves on them and they weigh it down with rocks. And then the goal for them, like a well-prepared beaver, is to be able to go into its lodge, which is usually in the middle of the pond or right on the bank, and it has underwater entrances. Hunker down. When you get hungry, swim out, grab your snacks, swim back into the lodge, eat it in the lodge, and never have to surface because they're really, really vulnerable in the winter. Uh, so they would never have to actually leave the pond system. Um, so in that scenario, the main pond, it's going to be cold, but it's going to be a little bit uh, insulated from the external temperatures. So you will still have liquid water in there in the winter. They make it deep enough for that. They also build a lot of secondary dams around their main pond, and they do that to sort of protect their main pond. It helps slow down flood waves. It helps create a little bit more stable waterway around them, and it extends their area of influence a bit. Those ones are usually a lot smaller, so they will freeze through in the winter. Uh, a lot of the times I saw it when I was living in Colorado, a lot of the secondary ponds were frozen through, but the main pond was still uh, maintaining liquid water. And so when everything's frozen, you don't really get as much interaction with the groundwater system, um, but it does sort of keep some water in that landscape still. And then when spring snowmelt comes, uh, it breaks up the ice and you just sort of recharge that system and get it all going again. So cool. Last fall, I was hiking, it was November, and we were starting to get some snow. The ice was sort of forming around the edges of the beaver ponds I was looking at, but they weren't completely frozen over. So you could see that cache that they had started. It was really cool. I grabbed a photo of it. I'll have to send it to you. but. Um, at the time I was like, why is that pond full of like freshly cut sticks? You know, it just looked like a bunch of willow twigs mm -hmm. that have been laid there in a big pile, but it was really cool to see. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things is visiting beaver ponds in the winter. Cause you can see stuff like that. Um, one of the tools I use out in the field is thermal cameras. And if you look around, uh, 
a beaver pond in the middle of winter, everything's super, super cold. And then you look at the lodge and the lodge is sitting there at like 65, 70 degrees because all their little beaver bodies are inside keeping it toasty. (laughs) And if you get the like the water vapor point and the air temperature and everything just right, you can kind of see this little steam plume coming out of their lodges. It's super cool. That's awesome. Cool. So, so how many beaver typically do you find in a lodge? I, I imagine there's a huge variance, but like how long do beavers stay together? How many beavers per square mile type of thing are they happy with? Um, beavers <laughs> stay together. So beavers mate for life. Uh, they're, you'll have dad beaver and mom beaver, and then they build a dam and a lodge. And once they feel like they're settled, they'll start having kits, uh, which are their babies, once per year. A litter of kits is anywhere from like two to six, but I've seen mostly on that lower end, so two or three kits are born. Um, the kits between year zero and year one are pretty uh, standard baby animals or babies. They're very useless. They stay at home, they cry, <laughs> they eat, um, they make a mess. And they're pretty cute. And then between year one and two, they're called yearlings and they're still at home with their family. So a baby beaver will stay with its parents for about two years. Uh, And in that second year of their life, they are sort of shadowing mom and dad, learning how to be a better beaver. Um, Dam building is instinctual. So beavers will do it even if they're separated from their parents at birth, but they definitely do practice with their parents and they, you know, will practice building the dam. They'll practice chewing the trees. They will follow their mom and dad around when they're uh, out packing mud into the lodge. And so there is some element of sort of familial learning that happens. And this sort of helps them when they do ultimately leave the, the family at year two and they either have to go upstream or downstream and start their own families. Um, if they have had a good sort of strong beaver upbringing, they're going to be more likely to make it through their first winter. And that's when the most beaver mortality happens is when they don't catch enough food in the first winter, they have to go out searching and they get picked off by a predator. Uh-huh. Um, I imagine a lot of things like to eat beavers. They yeah. taste pretty good to yeah. <laughs> everything out there. If they can catch them. Uh, Once they're in the water, they're really hard to get. Uh, So an adult beaver is going to be anywhere from 40 up to 110 pounds. Uh, Oh, my gosh. They can be enormous. Uh, (laughs) So once you are a big adult beaver, like, you are pretty safe, Uh, except from a few predators. So up in Minnesota uh, and in Canada and in Alaska, beavers can make up up to a third of a wolf's diet. So that is a very good predator for beavers. other animals that can take down an adult beaver is like grizzly bears and mountain lions. And that's about it. That's Uh, crazy. Yeah. They, and obviously as we've lost some of our really big predators, um, that has an effect on the beavers, but, um, there's enough of, uh, government trapping happening that Mm -hmm. the beavers are still struggling on their own just fine. Um, but the, uh, the baby beavers are, they are very small when they start out. Like you could put them in your hand. And so that's another place where beaver mortality Have you mortality ever seen happens. a baby beaver? A baby Yes. <laughs> they are the cutest. They are so small. And um, when you're out in the field and you see a beaver swimming, you can kind of tell what age it's at. So if it's an adult beaver, only its head is going to be out of water when it's swimming and it's super agile and it looks really graceful. Uh, if it's a yearling, then usually its head is out of water, but it's but is also kind of floating out of the water a little bit, um, not quite as graceful. And then if you see a baby beaver, like a true kit, uh, it looks like 
a weird muskrat when it's swimming because it's got all four <laughs> legs going and its butts out of the water and its body's out of the water and it's flicking its tail around wild because their buoyancy is different as they age and like they got their floofy fur and they're trying to learn how to swim with it. Um, so you can really tell when you see a baby beaver swimming because it looks awkward. Um, so, so when they leave the den to go off on their own, um, I have a couple of questions. One is like typically about how big are they at that point? Cause I imagine they're not a hundred pounds yet. <laughs> yeah. I know that'd be tough to have what 400 pound beavers. Right. In a single no one is 70 degrees inside the lodge. Yeah. Um, they, so they're pretty close to their adult size. The super large beavers are typically only in like really Northern climates where they're putting on a lot of fat and they have a lot of food available to them. Okay. Um, the beavers that I've seen around, are probably more in the 60 to 70 pound range, which is still not a trivially sized animal. Yeah. Um, but they can be pretty close to full size when they leave home. And then they'll go maybe um, a few kilometers upstream or downstream, and they really like to fix old broken dams. So beavers naturally will move back and forth throughout the landscape. Um, their ponds trap sediment, and then they decide they don't want to bother digging out this pond anymore, so they'll move a little bit, and then the dam will naturally sort of break down, and you'll have some more drainage that'll move that sediment along. Um, so there's lots of broken dams mixed in with the actively maintained dams. And beavers that are leaving home for the first time, they love to go to a broken dam and fix it up, uh, which makes something that we've been building as humans really, really important, and that's beaver dam analogs. So we build basically what are, I guess, like, they're just kind of crappy beaver dams that people <laughs> go out and try to build in a stream, like knowing very well that we can't build beaver dams. Like, they're really amazing feats of engineering. But uh, the number of researchers I know that have been trying to do a study on a beaver dam analog where they want to see how well the BDA works have had their study completely derailed because a beaver moves in and takes wow. it over. And now it's not a BDA study anymore. It's a beaver study. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it happens pretty often. So when you get beavers looking for their first home, they'll come to a BDA and they'll be like, wow, this is not great. Uh, the beaver that built this is not good at it, but <laughs> I can fix it. Uh, and then they do and they fix it up and they turn it into a real beaver dam and then they'll start their home there. If they can't find anything to fix, they will build from scratch, but it's more work um, and they're leaving home in the late summer. And if you have an early freeze coming, that doesn't give them a lot of time. Right. Oh, that's so, so in cool. Southwest, in Southwest Idaho, I've been part of um, some BDA work uh, in the Owyhee Mountains. And it's funny because what you said is totally true. Uh, two summers ago, we installed a set on this creek. And just last summer, I got a text from my friend who works for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, who was sort of piloting that project and he's like well we got beavers that moved in and they had built off the structure um, but in their case it was on private land and that was really the goal because they had this problem beaver they were trying to draw it down from this one section of creek that the landowner was really struggling with and they're like I don't want to shoot it but I'm sort of at my wits end so um, this guy came in hired a bunch of folks I went out as a volunteer to help and write a story about it. And um, it worked. So that was really cool to see, even just within the span of 12 months, that come together. Did they do any sort of um, deterrent up at the current dam or, or to encourage the beaver to seek a new neighborhood? Or um, I think they tried to, what do you call it? Beaver deceivers? Yeah. There's something that you can put in that sort of deters them, but I don't think that worked with this one. What's a, can you tell us about that? What's a beaver deceiver? Uh, beaver deceiver is an excellent name for what is essentially a pipe that you put <laughs> in one end of 
one end goes in the beaver pond and the other end goes downstream and you control their water level instead of them. And so if you want to almost entirely drain their pond, you can. If you just want to take it down a little bit so it doesn't flood a road, you can. Um, they give humans the engineering control over the beaver dam structure. And so these are really, really good for when you have a beaver that has dammed up like a culvert and you need to clear that dam out and encourage them to not build right there. Mm -hmm. You put in your beaver deceiver, make it really hard for them to dam there and keep their water level low enough that it doesn't actually flood the culvert. And then the beaver goes and builds somewhere else and everybody's happy. Nice. Um, I'm really enjoying this conversation. <laughs> just I know, I that. feel like I have so many questions. I am curious, so how, well, let me start that over. Will beavers travel over dry land to get to another site? Let's say it's young beavers moving away from, you know, where they were raised or another beaver just trying to move to a different habitat. Uh, will beavers move over? So what I'm thinking of here is um, back when I did field work, we had some sites that were had, you know, really high with beaver activity and a neighboring creek that was one drainage over, but you kind of had to go up and over this tall hill I mean some people would call it a mountain it was more of a hill but um the next summer beavers were populating that stream as well so I'm wondering if they would go way out of their way and follow sort of the creek drainage or if they would go the direct route up and over to get to that neighboring creek they definitely can travel overland they don't prefer it they're very vulnerable when they're on land but it's possible um the beavers in Nevada that I studied, one of the big questions was where did they come from? Because yeah. those two creeks didn't have beavers before. And either there was like a rogue beaver believer out there, like <laughs> picking them up and moving them against the rules, <laughs> which is possible, but I don't think is likely. Or they came from a nearby colony. And I know there's some down in the Ruby Mountains. And then there's also some north of there. So maybe those ones made their way onto these creeks. I don't know how far they would be willing to travel overland. I think it depends a lot on how stressed they are for resources and sort of what their options are. Because if there's nowhere for them to build, then like they have to, they have to go mm -hmm. overland and risk it, but it's definitely not preferred. And I wonder, yeah. do they have any sort of, what is it, like dowsing? <laughs> is that what it's called <laughs> when you like walk along with the stick to look for water? So they know a bit which direction to head in? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think they use sticks. Um, <laughs> they use it for a lot of things, but probably not dowsing. Uh, they, I mean, they've got a pretty good sense of smell uh, okay. and they have a really good sense of hearing. Their eyesight is not great. Um, one of the things that makes them want to build is the sound of flowing water. And if they can smell willow, I imagine that that would mm. be enticing to them. Uh, so I do think that they are able to hone in on good habitats, but... Um, I don't know. I think like if you're going over a drainage, if it's not that far and you have like some semi-empty or dry-ish creek beds, it doesn't seem like too big of a stretch to have them move through that landscape. But I, I can't imagine they would just like roam through the desert um, <laughs> searching, but maybe they do. I don't, I don't know. I'm just imagining hiking through the sagebrush, you know, no trees in sight, way up high and seeing a beaver. And that would be one of the strangest things that could, I think, possibly ever happen to me out there. <laughs> and and in my head, it's like this old, what, wizened beaver with like you know, reading glasses and a cane talking yep. about his youth. Um, <laughs> exactly. So I'm curious, uh, uh, two, uh, kind of a two-part question. What beaver conservation 
looks like and how that differs across the different geography of North America? Um, so beaver conservation in general is let them build in wilderness that they're native to. They have so many benefits to the ecosystem and to fish and to birds and to water storage and water conservation that even if like you are personally ambivalent to beavers, like the fact that you have a beaver in a watershed is typically net positive. And as soon as you try to micromanage the beaver's engineering, you'll either scare it off or you'll ruin it. So a lot of beaver conservation is just let the beavers be beavers. Um, state by state, it varies how they're managed when they cause issues. So they do, like, I love beavers, but if I had a house and a beaver was constantly flooding it, I would be <laughs> frustrated by that. Like, sure. I can understand the issue there. Um, so how they get moved or how they get dealt with in nuisance situations is going to vary from state to state. Uh, pretty much every state you're allowed to put up deterrents. So you can paint trees with um, sand paint basically and they don't like to chew that uh, you can wrap them in chicken wire and they won't chew that they are really dependent on trees in most aspects of their life and so if you're trying to get them to move you can just wrap up all of the trees and that becomes a really bad place for beavers then and so kind of like what you were saying in idaho a lot of the conservation can be sort of just nudging the beavers in the right direction like hey you don't really belong on this farm you're causing problems but if you just moved a couple miles downstream think about all these great dams you could build um, and pushing the beaver in that direction Another really big part of it is education. Um, so back to the sort of, we don't have a lot of memory of what the landscape was like when there were beavers everywhere. A lot of people still are really unsure about what beavers do. Uh, the biggest misconception I hear about beavers is that they eat fish. They do not eat fish. They do not eat anything other than plants and their own poop. So we don't really have to worry about them eating fish in streams. Um, Another thing, so I've looked at all of the permit data for depredation permits on beaver in California. And one thing that really strikes me is that a lot of the reasons given on the permits are clearly from people who care about the environment a lot. Uh, and they just are missing information about what beavers do and don't do. So like one of the permits came in and it said, you know, the beaver built a dam, which is true. Uh, and the stream turned into a wetland, which is true. Uh, and then it was like, I think the beaver is hurting the groundwater by doing this. Mm. And that's where it's like not true anymore. Like the beaver is helping the groundwater, especially in California. Um, but there was just this little bit of information missing. And that led someone to want to move the beaver or hurt the beaver because they were trying to help the environment. And so education is so huge. I take people on beaver walks and we hike out to a beaver pond and I just talk about what it's doing and what it's not doing and try to answer questions for people. And I have found that to be so, so important uh, for conserving them. Um, and does that work change at all? from being here in the more arid west to being in like the southeast of the country or I mean it changes some in sort of what issues are most pressing for people so out in the west a lot of people want to hear about the drought and the fire side of things like how are beavers helping keep my land safe during wildfire how are they helping keep my plants green during a bad water year um and it's back to the beavers are slowing down the water and they're keeping it in the landscape and spreading it out. Uh, in the southeast, there is a lot of work on urban beavers and a lot of the worry is about flooding. And are they going to flood the roads? Are they going to flood this? Are they going to flood that? But it's the same thing to talk about. Like they're not going to really make flooding worse because when the big flood waves come screaming down these really 
narrow urban channels and they hit a beaver pond, they spread out and it slows it down and it actually takes a lot of power out of that flood wave so that when it does go downstream, it's a lot weaker and you see ultimately less damage. And so depending on where you're at, sort of how you frame or how you talk about what beavers do might change, but the key thing is still that they're slowing down the water and they're storing it uh, and they do that everywhere. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about um, beavers and, and wildfires. Um, can you can you expand on that? Mm-hmm. So when I was studying beavers and drought, I was seeing that the whole landscape was basically wilting uh, and going dry and crinkly, except for around the beaver ponds, where it was staying really green and lush. And so in my mind, the next logical thing would be fires. Because when I'm out trying to start a campfire, no part of me goes and finds like the wet green stuff to try to burn. I would go collect dry sticks. Uh, And so if the beavers are stopping plants from going dry, then in theory, they'd be stopping fires from burning those plants because like you don't start a fire with wet kindling. And so using the same approach of using satellite images to look down on these beaver dammed areas and see how healthy the plants are, um, I changed my study site from somewhere that was uh, just impacted by drought to a bunch of places that had been impacted by wildfires. And so what I was looking at is as a wildfire comes through the landscape, what does it look like in a beaver dammed area? And what I've been seeing is that you have the landscape just burning across the American West, except by beaver ponds. And at beaver ponds, what you see is that it's green before the fire. It's green, like during the fire, surrounded by flames. And then it's green again after the fire. So if you are in the beaver wetland, you're essentially not going to feel the fire. And depending on how windy it is and how big the fire is, like the fire can blow over the beaver ponds. Like is, unless you have kilometers and kilometers wide of beaver damming, like you can get a spark that just blows over and starts again on the next side. So I wouldn't necessarily say that a beaver pond is a fire break, but I definitely would say that it is a refuge during the fire. And so if you're a fish or you're a salamander or a frog or a bird or some small mammal that's not gonna have an easy time out running a fire, you can just hunker down in the beaver ponds uh, mm-hmm. and wait it out. They, isn't there an, a, like an official, do they call them like emerald sanctuaries or something like that? Oh, yeah. It was like an emerald or like a, yeah, it was either emerald or like a jewel or something that was like rock themed uh, <laughs> in the landscape. Yeah, I saw that. It was a great term for it. And it really does speak to what they are. They are bright green, um, just surrounded by char. And it's very striking. Is and there... I imagine after a fire, like with all the surface erosion, with just a lot of the, you know, a lot of the plants below in that topsoil, they're gone. Um, I would imagine that beaver dams in sort of a, a larger riparian area would help that as well. Mm-hmm. I've seen some preliminary work uh, at conferences where people are looking at um, ash going down the waterway and you get like really sediment choked streams. And so that's like, it's terrible for fish because it clogs their gills. It's terrible for everything that's laying eggs because it smothers the eggs. Um, but then it hits the beaver pond and because the water is so slow there, the ash sort of just sinks out and becomes part of the pond bottom. And then downstream of the beaver pond, you have much less uh, ash-filled water. And so it's clearer and cleaner. I'd be curious, just knowing that, you know, knowing how important wildfires are to just the landscape and the natural evolution of the landscape in the West, I'd be curious what long-term role that ash plays in water systems and beaver ponds when it's treated like that or process like that. Yeah. When I think about fire a lot, like one thing I always come back to is that 
most of these ecosystems have evolved for fire. Like they, fire's always been part of the West. Uh, what we're seeing now though, is that the fires are uh, more frequent, they're bigger. And what we also used to have was wetlands. So in the Western US, we've lost, depending on the state, between like 60 and 90% of wetland area. And so trying to think about what was the landscape like when every stream was full of wetlands and how did that change fire behavior is like a really big question that I don't think has been fully answered. So we know that fire happens and that's natural, but what we often forget is that fire happens in landscapes that used to have a lot more riparian zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there data to show that these wetlands act as animal sanctuaries during wildfires? Uh, not during wildfires specifically, but there's a lot of data showing that animals uh, do preferentially hang out at beaver ponds. Um, there's been some work out of Wyoming that looked at waterfowl and how often like ducks and things hang out in beaver ponds versus other types of wetlands and they strongly prefer the beaver ponds. Um, and speaking from looking at a game camera I have installed at a beaver pond, it is duck city. There's so many ducks, <laughs> like all kinds of ducks, fancy ducks, weird ducks, normal ducks. Um, it's, I've never seen so many ducks in my life in like one place. And um, there have been studies that show that frogs like to use beaver channels to move around the landscape because it creates uh, hydrologic connectivity between different ponds and different sections of stream. So they can actually uh, expand their range and you don't get as much population inbreeding because the frogs can move better when they have mm -hmm. these beaver channels. Um, but actually looking at it during wildfire has not been done and it is something I'm very interested in doing. So if any of y'all listeners are ecologists or just people that are good at identifying animals, if you happen to be in a recently burned beaver pond, please talk to me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I love it. Uh, we're going to, we're going to, pause right here for a second to hear a word from our sponsor, but uh, stick with us. We, we will be right back. The Artemis podcast is presented by Hunt to Eat, a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on inclusive community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com to check out their new turkey hunting inspired teas, their Artemis line, wild game recipes, and more. Use code Artemis10 for 10% off your order. That's A-R-T-E-M-I-S-1-0. Welcome back. Um, Becca, you had a question. So I have read Ben Goldfarb's book. It's called Eager, and it's all about beavers. And one of the things that I really took away from that was in one of the first chapters, he talked about how in the West, I think particularly in the West, our our idea of what a stream looks like is kind of all wrong. You know, that really defined meandering channel that just goes back and forth through a valley with nothing on either side of it. And so, I mean, would you, would you kind of agree with that? Would you say that, you know, if we went back hundreds of years before the trapping of beavers was so prevalent, do you think, you know, what we think of as like that picturesque stream and the mountains would look a lot different? Yeah, absolutely. It would look really, really different. And I mean, when I think about streams, I do think about that nice, pretty meandering stream because it's like, it's a nice image. Uh, but that's not at all what I would consider to be a healthy stream uh, in the West. Healthy streams are messy. They are full of wood. They are full of all sorts of plants that maybe have thorns on them. There's lots of bugs. There's lots of mud. Um, the healthiest streams 
I've been to, I sink waist deep into the mud as soon as I step in them. Um, and that's like not pleasant from like a hiker or a photography perspective, but that's really what our waterways should look like. They should be really complex. There should be water kind of splashed out throughout the landscape and patches that are soggy and patches that are dry. And it shouldn't be this really homogenous, tidy string going through the landscape. It should look like the big messy disaster. And that's like, that's the best it can be. Yeah. So instead of losing two to three flies every time I go fly fishing, I'd probably lose every single one to the willows. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. You get, I mean, it's really going to put our skills to the test. You got to be able to place that thing perfect or it's uh, one with the landscape. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, so Artemis has done a lot of work in collaboration with the Northern Rockies and Prairies Regional Office of the National Wildlife Federation. Um and with uh, Clark Fork Coalition, which is another local nonprofit, last year to do a citizen science project, we were basically just hiking up these small streams um, in public land woods here on the outskirts of Missoula city limits to look for beaver sign and just collecting data for the state agency to give them information on where beavers might be uh, and where, if not where the beavers might be, then where is potential beaver habitat. And so it's... I think it's surprising to me that most of this research into beaver is really, I mean, it's, it's young still, right? I mean, my understanding is that it's really only like a decade or two old that we've really started looking closely at beaver's impact on habitat. Is that right? Yeah, for the most part, that is right. We had like a little period in the 1920s through 1940s where some people started thinking about beavers and then it really fizzled out and wasn't revisited until just the last couple of decades. And what do you think is, is there something specific behind sort of that reinvigoration of interest? Uh, honestly, I think it's the work of just a handful of like really vocal beaver <laughs> people. And they realized beavers are cool and they had them on their property and they started telling people about it. And it, there's, it's contagious talking about beavers and how interesting they are and how many changes they can make in a landscape. Um, and once you get talking about it, you realize a lot of people have encountered beaver dams or beaver ponds, and they have a memory of it, and they can relate to it personally. Um, and I think that while academics have just started really digging into it, like knowledge about beaver ponds is old. And admittedly, when I'm looking for a new field site, my first thing I do is Google where is the gold star trout waters, um, because usually I also find beavers there. Uh, and then the second thing I do is I ask anglers, where have you seen a beaver pond? And they know. Uh, and especially in Colorado, I could ask anyone who fishes, like, what's your favorite spot? And they'd all be like, oh, it's this beaver pond up by this mountain. Uh, that's where you can like really get a good cast out and, you know, catch some really great fish. And I'm like, wow, you are a wealth of knowledge. And now I'm going to go look at it with satellites. But like, always remember where the ponds are. I need that. Um, so academics are a little bit late to the scene, but people have been interested in beavers for a long time. That's so cool. Um, before we switch to our closing question, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter. I'm very active on my Twitter account. It's at Emily Fairfax. Um, people can always send me emails, uh, emily.fairfax at csuci.edu. I am always happy to talk about beavers and even if you're just like i saw this stick and i'm not sure if it was chewed by a beaver can you help me like i'll answer that question yes. i still get excited seeing beaver sticks over emails <laughs> that's fabulous we'll make sure you get a, a handful of those um and also everybody if you're listening you should go check out emily's website she's got this awesome 
um, stop action film about beavers and wildfire that's super cool to watch and looks like it was a lot of fun to make. So much fun. Yeah. Uh, okay. Any closing thoughts about beavers? Becca, any closing questions about beavers? No, I feel really lucky to have asked you all these questions. This was an awesome conversation. Yeah. Emily, closing thoughts? Um, closing thoughts about beavers. Something that people always ask me about is how sturdy is the dam? Uh, it's very sturdy. So you can walk on it. You can um, touch it. You, It's pretty hard to break. I really don't recommend trying to break it, though, because mm-hmm. while it's very sturdy, uh, it's basically made of harpoons because the beavers chew all these <laughs> sticks into points. Uh, and so the, <laughs> the most injuries that I've had to deal with and that I warn my students about is uh, when you go in a beaver pond, be careful because it's full of pointy sticks mm-hmm. and you really don't want to break that dam because then you're going to have a flood of pointy sticks coming at you um but beavers are docile they're not going to attack you um they're super passive critters so uh enjoy beaver ponds but be respectful of the dam and be careful of the sticks yeah that's awesome i hadn't thought about that but that's an excellent point did have you gotten any cool images on your wildlife cam of beavers yeah oh yeah so we put it up at one of their slides um which is like they they have their dam built and sometimes they need to get over their dam. And so they'll pack a portion of it with extra mud. So it's not as pokey and it's easier to walk on. Uh, And so we put a camera looking at one of their slides and we got just this gargantuan beaver coming down. Like this thing is huge. (laughs) And I don't know if it's a pregnant one or if it's just like super well-fed, but it's a massive beaver. And I was watching this thing go up and down with sticks and it's like waddling and really cumbersome and then like a few shots later there's this baby that comes down the slide and I'm like oh my god it's the (laughs) cutest but then seeing that baby also put into perspective how absolutely huge the adult was that sounds amazing I was surprised it's a dry area and I wasn't expecting a super well-fed beaver and I'm fascinated by the fact that they can get that big and that fat on willows yeah this is I mean it's sugary their bark they prefer sugary trees I don't Uh blame them um And they also eat pond weeds. So I guess like cows can also get pretty huge from just grass. And they're like little water cows. That's so cool. All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is fabulous. Uh, Thank you so much. I did. I really did enjoy this conversation. And I imagine we could go for another hour. Um, But I want to be respectful of everybody's time. So we will, we'll, we'll wind it down with our closing question. Um, what were you aiming for this week and how did it go? Becca, you want to kick us off with hits and misses? Um, sure. So I all I was aiming for this week was to finish, well, not the only thing I should say, but one of the big things I was aiming for this week, I I have this tendency to pick up books and start reading them and then finish them like four years later. <laughs> so I had this book that I bought. It's called The Living Mountain. Um, it's all about the Cairngorms over in Scotland. And it's a pretty small book, but something that I've wanted to read for a long time. And I finished it within a month, which is certainly not a record, but I feel really good about actually starting and finishing a book all within the same calendar month. So that's what I did this week that I'm quite proud of. Congratulations. (laughs) I feel like that doesn't, I feel like I shouldn't need congratulations for that, but at this point in my life, I'll take it. Well, I think it's nice to have like a, uh, I don't know, um, a schedule that, um, what am I trying to say here? I think it's nice to have a schedule that is maybe a little pandemic induced where you, ha- where you have some more downtime where you can, 
read. Yeah. 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 Uh, Emily, what were you aiming for this week and how did it go? I was aiming to actually get out and run again because I had gotten this really great running routine down. And then Memorial Day weekend, I went out to a bunch of beaver ponds and was not careful and Mm -hmm. got a huge amount of poison oak. (gasps) And it was the worst poison oak I've had in my life. And it lasted a whole month. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I had this like psychological block about running because it'd been a month and I was like, oh, I'm going to be out of shape again. It's not fun. Uh, And I was like psyching myself out. And then I went for a couple of runs this week and it felt really good. Uh, And I'm really happy that I got past that block. I'm not coated in poison oak anymore. uh, And I've significantly invested in a lot of different companies that make poison oak lotions. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. That sounds miserable. I'm so sorry. It was rough. Yeah. Nice. Um, well, yeah, congrats on getting back out there. Uh, I feel like I have a couple misses this week, <laughs> so which is fine because that happens too. Um, one is is sort of a semi-miss. I was out scouting um, earlier this week for some areas that I'm hoping to hunt this fall, and it, the road was blocked because there was a bridge down, so I wasn't able to go on the in the area that I was looking to go. So, you know, plan B, backtracked a little bit and went up a, a different mountain that was not at all what I was looking for but I did find this giant huckleberry patch um that I'm stoked to go back to in a couple months to to pick some huckleberries and maybe see if there are any bear in the area so that was super fun um and then wait Marsha was that a miss that sounds like a hit it was it was a miss that turned into a hit (laughs) (laughs) I need to it's it's a mitt it's a hiss um yeah I know it became a hit but uh I didn't get any scouting done that was the miss um but the bigger miss is that I am supposed to leave on Sunday to go out to northeastern Montana to collect willow branches and deadwood for a beaver analog dam um a little work party that we're collaborating again with the northern Rockies um, NWF regional office and some conservation core groups out there that I was really looking forward to, but I may have been exposed to COVID. <laughs> so I'm waiting for, um, a friend to for their test results to come back to see if I can still go on this trip or not. And there's a chance that I can't because this, I mean, for a lot of reasons, but primarily this area of Montana doesn't have any, uh, confirmed cases yet and I certainly don't want to be the first one to go um but the return time for tests is like two to seven days and I don't know if I'll get it in time to be able to confidently um travel that far across the state so if that's the case that's a huge miss but you know 2020 is continuing to teach me about flexibility and adaptability and social responsibility so I'll take those lessons where I can. And gardening and, and baby <laughs> crows and all sorts of stuff. Yes. Yeah, so baby crow update. Um, uh, so Emily, last week I was telling on the podcast that I've had three baby crows hanging in, out in my backyard um, for about a week now. And they've been so fun to watch. And they still are visiting me. And they seem to particularly enjoy my yard in the afternoon because I've got some nice shade trees and a little bird bath, but I was watching them the other day and there was a magpie visiting the bird bath and the baby crow did not like that. And so it was chasing the magpie off and totally face planted into the grass. <laughs> and it was the, I laughed out loud. It was, yeah, there's nothing like watching a baby crow face plant. It was <laughs> so yeah. cute. Anyway. Well, I hope crying. you, I hope you stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. 
it'll, we'll see. Um, I feel good. So hopefully everything stays good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, Becca, I feel like this is the second week in a row. We end on kind of a downer. <laughs> Last <laughs> week, week it was parking, um, or not parking, uh, traffic jams. And this week it's COVID tests. Can't wait to hear what next week brings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Emily, thank you again so much for talking with us today. I, I really enjoyed this conversation and um, hopefully we can have you back at some point to, to talk again. Cause yeah, again, absolutely. You, you can never talk too much about beaver. I could go on for hours for real. <laughs> uh, if you're listening and you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. If you have a story to share, please share it with us. Send an email to Artemis at nwf.org. Thank you so much for listening to the Artemis podcast presented by Hunt to Eat. Until next time, be bold, stay curious, and get outside. Thank mm-hmm. you.